Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. Welcome, Katherine and Anita. Well, President Joe Biden called for an end to the filibuster to allow for passage of federal voting rights legislation to prevent states from imposing laws that limit access to the vote. The president argued that voting rights are a bedrock American value and need to be better protected. Biden's Republican opponents want states to support more rigorous voter identification and ballot security measures to prevent voter fraud. The U.S. Labor Department says consumer prices climbed 7% for the year ending in December 2021, the fastest increase since 1982. Republicans have seized upon rising prices as evidence that President Biden's economic policies, including his $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package enacted last March, have done more harm than good. However, the Biden administration says supply chain bottlenecks corporations, including energy, gas, and meat producers, are also to blame for inflation. The United States said Russia did not promise to de-escalate tensions along the border with Ukraine during Wednesday's meeting with NATO, while calling on Moscow to stay at the negotiating table even after this week's talks. Scientists are seeing signs that COVID-19's alarming Omicron wave may have peaked in Britain and is about to do the same in the U.S., at which point cases may start dropping off dramatically. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. President Biden called for an end to the filibuster to allow for passage of a federal voting rights bill. He and Vice President Kamala Harris visited the U.S. state of Georgia. Georgia has a long history of battles over voting rights and has become a hotly contested political battleground in the past few years. Biden won Georgia in the 2020 election by less than a percentage point, becoming the first Democratic presidential candidate to prevail in the state since 1992. Well, Anita, from your coverage of this, what has been the response to the president's visit to Georgia and how will this trip help to get the federal voting rights bill passed. The reception to this has been mixed. It's notable that some prominent civil rights and voting rights advocates said that they were going to skip Biden's Tuesday speech in Atlanta because they wanted to see action from the president, not just hear more words. Some of his critics argue these are people who support these two pieces of legislation. Some of these critics say, you know, this should have been your priority in 2021, not now in 2022 when we're staring down primaries and midterm elections. And it, it might be too late to do anything. So that crowd might not be convinced. I think it's predictable that Biden's Republican opponents ran lukewarm to cold, you could say, on his remarks. But they were pretty harsh and continued to oppose these two pieces of legislation. Building off of what Anita said, Republicans' reaction to this speech was incredibly harsh. We heard from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who called Biden's Atlanta speech deeply, deeply unpresidential and beneath the dignity of the office. And that was a really striking statement from McConnell, given that in the past, there have been some tussles between him and former President Donald Trump over what was termed presidential. So McConnell really came out swinging and said, as many Republicans are saying, that federal mandates of voting laws simply should not be, that this should really be decided at the state level 
in the state legislatures, Democrats on their side are saying, look, we have only really until about mid-February to address some of the state-level changes that are going on across the country. And if we don't do this, if we don't break the filibuster, if we don't find some way to address these changes, they're going to have sweeping ramifications for the 2022 midterms and the 2024 presidential election. Well, what are the present concerns with the voting rights? There are a number of concerns. You know, we've heard a lot about some of these provisions that prevent election workers from handing out food and water to people who are waiting in many places and hours and hours in long lines. There are concerns about voter ID and how that's really impacting people of color in particular, their ability to access the ballot box. And also a lot of people have been pushing for a very long time to make election day a federal holiday so that people get off of work and are able to go vote. This is really a time investment for people who may be working two or three jobs. Democrats wanna make sure that there is access for all. But what Republicans are saying is that this is really mandating from Washington, D.C. This is the federal government telling states what to do. And that's simply not how elections should be run. They should be decided at a more local level. As Catherine just said, this kind of boils down to an argument between access on the one hand and integrity on the other. And this falls neatly along partisan lines where you have the Democratic side saying, we need to open this up and make it easier for people to vote. We need to you know, enable people to access these polls more easily. And the Republican side saying, whoa, 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 hold your horses. We need to make sure that these elections are safe, that they're reliable, that there's not room for voter fraud, which of course is the cornerstone of the Republican Party's argument about the disputed 2020 election, where Donald Trump claims that there was widespread voter fraud. And you know this is partly a reaction to that. And as the uncontested head of the Republican Party, a lot of his party members are kind of falling into line with him and saying, yep, we need to focus on election integrity. It does have to be said, though, that there was no evidence found whatsoever of this election fraud that, that President Trump is alleging. Right. And I think it's really interesting the political calculation that Democrats are making here with this effort to break the filibuster. We've been getting some new polling over this past week about how Americans feel about some of these voting rights legislation changes. And there is a lot of support when you go through and take people through some of the individual provisions. I think while we've heard a lot of complaints from former President Trump about the election process, it has raised awareness among the American people about how our democratic process works and looking at some of the possible reforms that may need to happen. So while there is broad public support for some of the changes Democrats wanna make, we also know that they are really not going to be able to get this legislation through, given the way this filibuster and breaking these rules will work. So it's definitely a political risk for them to take when they're heading into a midterm election year. Yes, that is so true. And then looking at ending the filibuster, looking at it in the past, it has benefited Democrats when they were in the minority and used it to try to block Republican legislation, not always successfully, However, if the Republicans should win the midterms in the latter part of this year, the Democrats will want the filibuster. So if they change it now, will they be able to change it back in two years? There's a lot of debate up on Capitol Hill going on about that right now. And we're hearing from Democrats who really 
even a few years ago were saying, look, we shouldn't break this filibuster. And now they're all coming out and saying, look, my views on this have evolved. A lot of these rules that we're looking to break are not ancient Senate rules that have been there since the beginning. They were changes that went in in the 1990s when partisanship was increasing on Capitol Hill. They are saying that, look, we are actually breaking apart some of the barriers that have hindered work on Capitol Hill, and that's what should be done. A small minority should not be able to stymie all of the work of the U.S. Senate. Let's open it up to debate. Let's open this up so that we can have a discussion about what voting rights should be. On the other side, of course, Republicans are arguing, you know, if you go around breaking rules, then what is the meaning of the U.S. Senate? In our system, the U.S. Senate is supposed to be that cooling area, that area where there's reasoned, slow, measured debate. And so again, like, like the debate over voting rights, this is a debate over how you run the U.S. government, the U.S. legislature itself. That's a very hot topic. And moving on to a new inflation report from the Department of Labor. It's adding to the president's list of challenges. The nation's inflation rate has reached a 40-year high. President Biden expressed optimism on the report, saying it demonstrates that we are making progress in slowing the rate of price increases. But he did acknowledge the report, quote, underscores that we still have more work to do with price increases still too high and squeezing family budgets, unquote. So, Anita, what is the administration doing now to fight inflation? President Biden has undertaken a number of efforts. Now, in the free market system, he can't tell providers, energy providers, gas providers, whatever, to cap their prices. It's a free market. They're allowed to do what they want, but he can urge them and he can point out that it is his belief that they are squeezing American consumers and tell them to cut it out. And that's what he's doing. But the other points that he's tried to make is that the U.S. is the only major economy to rally so quickly. When inflation is high, that usually means that interest rates are low and that the economy is moving pretty fast and it's picking up. And we're seeing that in the job market right now. So he's kind of trying to encourage Americans to see the bright side. But there's not really a bright side when you walk out of the grocery store and your grocery bill is higher than it ever has been. And you're spending more than you have before on just basic things like bread and eggs and milk and what have you. So it's it's a bitter pill for American people to swallow. You know, he's also acknowledged that the president is usually blamed for inflation, but it's usually a basket of different factors that inspire, you know, inflation to rise or to fall. And a lot of that also is in the hands of the Federal Reserve, which has the ability to control interest rates. And we learned this week that the Fed anticipates as many as four hikes this year to interest rates, which will probably bring down inflation. Hopefully that's the intent. And that's where things get really interesting because, as Anita mentioned, this is a bitter pill for many Americans to swallow, to walk in and see empty shelves because of supply chain issues, to be paying more, to really feel that hit to their pocketbook. And when we talk about the political impact, we're going into a midterm election year. President Biden is hovering at somewhere like 30 to 35 percent approval rating. And that could be a real problem for Democrats. Some polls are showing that people are starting to worry more and more about the economy and about inflation than they are about COVID and the ongoing pandemic. That's really replacing people's worries as we move 
further and further into this year. And that's really going to be an issue when voters take a look at bringing Democrats back to Washington. President Biden and congressional Democrats really need to make the argument that they're addressing this problem or some of them may not be headed back. Yeah, that's a really good point that both of you have brought up. And just my speaking with people, as you say, I think it's going to be the economy is what is on people's minds and the concern of, like you say, walking into a store and not seeing things out there on the shelves and then having to pay more for what you get. And as Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says, inflation continues at these elevated levels for a longer period than expected time. The Federal Reserve will have to raise interest rates. And that's going to hit a key voting contingent, and that is the middle class, which feels like it's squeezed on both ends because, you know, the middle class is trying to invest in things like property, you know, accessing the American dream and buying homes. And that's where interest rates come in and are very important because you're basically buying a loan, right? And so this is really a problem politically because this hits a certain segment of the American population that is relatively politically active and and is a mover of the economy. So this is going to be possibly the headache for Democrats and for Republicans, for everybody. This is a headache. I mean, I'm not going to deny it. Going and spending more on groceries is a headache for me. It's a headache for you. So this is going to be something that persists into the, the political season that we have coming up. And Senate Democrats are already trying to head that off. I'm hearing from some of them up on Capitol Hill, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is arguing that inflation is actually a symptom of corporate greed, that corporations are hoarding their profits, they're not passing those savings along to the consumer, and that's the issue here. But if you talk to some economists, they'll argue back on that and say, well, look, corporations maintaining their profits was always an issue. It was an issue before the coronavirus pandemic. Nothing has dramatically changed in the way corporations operate since the coronavirus that has meant that there's this rising inflation. So a little bit of back and forth in this country on exactly what factors are going into that here. But ultimately, like Anita said, the president of the United States is most often held responsible for that issue when people go shopping, when they go to the ballot box. What they remember is that the president was in charge of the American economy. Yes, and we will have to see what the long-term effect of this could have on the president's administration. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, talks between NATO and Russia attempt to ease tensions. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, Catherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. Well, the United States and NATO rejected key Russian security demands for easing tensions over Ukraine, but left open the possibility of future talks with Moscow to discuss other issues like arms control, missile deployments, and ways to prevent military incidents. So Russia and NATO met in Brussels with a focus on reducing tensions along the border between both Russia and Ukraine. But where does Russia now stand since there were no breakthroughs 
Where to even start? So Russia's deputy foreign minister says that these talks are at a, quote, dead end after, you know, we're having three rounds of talks this week in Geneva and Brussels and Vienna, and these are multilateral talks with different organizations. Here's what's at stake. Russia is worried about what they perceive as military expansion that's going too far eastward into their sphere of influence, which is a blast from the past, that term, sphere of influence, very Cold War. They have asked for the U.S. to push NATO to bar Ukraine from its goal in getting membership in NATO, the strategic security alliance that was founded after World War II, literally, basically, essentially, to counter the Soviet Union. So they would like to not have NATO on their doorstep. And the U.S. says that this is a non-starter, that they're not going to stand in the way of anyone's path to NATO membership and that NATO and, and so, you know, there's sovereignty and that Ukraine can apply to join NATO and NATO can decide. So the two parties are now discussing other options and the U.S. has offered to put reciprocal limits on military exercises in the European region. It sounds like Russia isn't fighting. So it looks like these talks are at a standoff, but this standoff is kind of dangerous because you have 100,000 young, extremely excited soldiers on the Russian side of the Ukrainian border. And you have, I'm not sure how many, but just you know, a large number of patriotic, battle-juiced young men and women on the other side of the border. And so this is a potentially explosive situation that we find ourselves in even after these talks. That's right. And I can speak from the domestic side up on Capitol Hill and just say that lawmakers are really concerned that the U.S. is going to be caught unawares, as some felt it was back when Putin invaded Crimea, and that the U.S. did not have sanctions ready to go. We're seeing a lot of bills come up in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House that are prepping military aid, increased military aid to Ukraine, ready-made sanctions for Putin and some of his cronies, all sorts of different designations, designating Russia as a possible terrorist state in case they do invade Ukraine. All of this is sitting and waiting, ready to go. And we're also hearing from Senate Republicans who are calling on Biden to be tougher. They feel like he has not threatened Putin enough, has not used that stick instead of the famous carrot to induce Putin to kind of step away from this showdown. So there's been a lot of back and forth on Capitol Hill about the way Biden is handling this. And I think Republicans are remembering some of his, what they would call missteps in Afghanistan last year. They don't want to see this as another foreign policy issue for Biden. Yes, absolutely. And as you mentioned, the Senate Democrats, they released their proposal for legislation ratcheting up sanctions on Russia. So I guess I'm wondering just how confident they are that ongoing talks will continue to hold Putin back from actually invading further into Ukraine. Well, what a lot of State Department officials have told U.S. lawmakers is that having these sanctions, this sanction legislation, ready to go is in of itself a deterrent to Putin, that he will know that the U.S. is prepped and ready to do this at a moment's notice if he does indeed go into Ukraine. So they're saying that this is a helpful step, that just having that ready to go is something that can be used in these talks to hopefully deter Putin from going into the Ukraine. 
Okay, and we will move on now to getting our last topic in. Just weeks ago, the U.S. was on track to end the COVID-19 pandemic in 2022. Then the Omicron variant hit, throwing scientists' projections into disarray. Now scientists are seeing signs that the Omicron wave may have peaked in Britain and is about to do the same in the U.S. Do observers think the Biden administration's strategies to fight COVID are helping to reduce the cases? That's a very good question, and there's been a lot of criticism over the administration's moves to try to temper this spike through providing tests, because critics say that the website that directs Americans to tests is slipshod and hard to access, and the tests have come too late to kind of meet this surge where they needed to meet it. So there is a lot of criticism for the Biden administration's response for it. And the Biden administration, for its part, says, you know, this caught us off guard. We didn't realize that this was going to come on so fast. At this point today, the U.S. now accounts for one out of three COVID infections worldwide. We are again the leader in in something that I know the U.S. likes to lead, but this is not winning. This is not somewhere that I think the U.S. would like to be leading COVID infections. So there is a lot of criticism for the administration's response and for the administration's continued insistence on vaccination. Let's not forget that tens of millions of Americans remain unvaccinated, remain hesitant, remain opposed to getting vaccinated, fully vaccinated with the current vaccines because they have fears, they have concerns over you know, the safety of the vaccine, but also are hesitant to follow the government's marching orders and don't like these mandates. So that remains an issue for the Biden administration, just convincing these people to catch up and to get vaccinated. So the Biden administration is taking it from all sides here. And this is a kind of a no-win situation because at the end of the day, The virus works harder than any administration can. It's it's a well-oiled machine. This virus is clever, it's adaptable, it's small, it doesn't need much. I hate to say it, it's a brilliant, brilliant enemy. And it is one that they're struggling with all around the world, but especially here in the U.S. Right. And as Anita mentions, people are, you know, reluctant to follow some of the government marching orders to have vaccine mandates. And part of that is confusion over the directions from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, that agency is getting a lot of flack lately for some of its shifting guidelines about how to deal with COVID infection, when you can go back to work, how often you should test to make sure that you're safe. And of course, as Anita mentioned, you know, we don't have enough tests here in this country. We don't even have enough N95 masks. That's something that a lot of lawmakers up on Capitol Hill are pushing through legislation to try and pass so that each American gets a good mask. When you step back and think about it, we're pretty much two years into this pandemic. The fact that we're still kind of struggling to address some of these basic issues is a surprise and is the reason why the U.S. is leading the world in COVID infections. And let's not forget the extra political headache that we're seeing right now across the country, notably in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in the D.C. area, which is the disruption this has caused at schools. Parents are really struggling. I am one of them, and I can speak from personal experience. It is difficult to have this disruption, not just for scheduling reasons, not just for the inconvenience of it, but because small humans need quite a bit of guidance. For lack of a better term, domestication. They need to be domesticated in a school environment, and they're not getting that, and this is going to affect society in the 
long term and parents are acutely aware of that and this has political implications we saw that in virginia the state where i live right now where one of the key issues in the governor's race in november was we had one republican candidate who was pushing for schools to return and a democrat who was seen as supporting schools in their shutdowns and that was the issue that i think drove the republican candidate to success in this election and this is a big issue this is going to continue to be a big issue as the school year continues and it's a headache for the biden administration Excellent points you both have brought up, and we will have to end the show on that note. My thanks go to Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.